I think we have to leave it there, even though we could probably keep going for a whole nother episode. <laughs> or I yeah. should say an entire new episode. A whole nother isn't really a phrase, even though it's used. A whole nother. Yes. Yeah. You're, you're it's creating an fix. Yes, exactly. You're, it, it, it shouldn't be able to be done in English. That's the only example I think of us for forming. What's it called again? The an infix. An infix instead of a suffix or a prefix. <laughs> I love that one. I yeah. use it intentionally all the time, <laughs> even though it shouldn't exist in English. <laughs> everyone and welcome to the protagonist podcast where each week we look at a great character and a great story i'm todd mack and i'm joe dorowski this week we're talking about orual in the c.s lewis novel till we have faces oh i just realized something i literally have never said this character's name out loud we're gonna have a hoosier situation in our head <laughs> during my synopsis <laughs> um, orual is that what we're going with or, or it's orual it's o-r-u-a-l orual so todd, give me I listened Orwell. to the Audible uh, version of this, so I'm going with okay. Orwell. All right. I can handle that. You got it. <laughs> You're all over this. Yes. Uh, as you said, this is Till We Have Faces, a 1956 novel, and in fact, the last fiction that C.S. Lewis wrote. Okay. So how did you come to this? A listener recommended it to me. I had never heard of it. <laughs> I don't, I, maybe I'd heard of it, but if... It's one of those things where, like, I have so little reference point that my brain just doesn't even process it. Because once I was told we were doing this, I have seen more references to it, or at least acknowledged more references to it, uh-huh. than I ever had previously in my life. We should say uh, which of our um, listeners. Our listeners? That would be loyal patron Rachel. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Rachel. So, this wasn't a pick, but a... It was a Rachel. It was a patron pick. So okay, yep. so this one was a was yep. a pick pick. Yes. yes. I wasn't sure, because... We do say that you, you can, can suggest things, and those things can end up on our list. Yeah, yeah. so on Facebook, if you, there's things you want us to talk about, just throw it up on our Facebook page or shoot us an email, and we, we'll see if we can get it in the schedule. But if you want but a guarantee, you gotta, yes. you got to pay up. And, and if you've paid and haven't given us the pick because we didn't email you or... Or we emailed you and we haven't heard back from you, yeah, feel like, free to yeah, let you, us know. You let us know, because we want to get you what you paid for. And I will just say, listeners, with where we're at in our schedule of recording and everything, if there's any Christmas shows you want us to discuss, now would be the moment oh, yes. to, to make a suggestion. Yeah, we do have a few <laughs> openings at Christmas time. I have to say that when Rachel requested this, I was so happy because, because I actually read this book. I think I was in high school. I may have been in junior high. And I read it. I, just on my own volition, I went to the library. I checked it out because it was C.S. Lewis, and I liked The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and uh, The Chronicles of Narnia. And I went home, and I read it, and I had the feeling that I did not understand this book. I mean, I understood the story, but I knew that there ha- there was way more going on symbolically than I was able to pick up at the time. And it really frustrated me. Like I felt like it was just a waste. Like, like I had read something that was in a different language and I, and I really knew that I didn't understand what was going on at all. And it's bothered me ever, ever since then. So I was really excited to be able to take another crack at this. 
and I got way more out of it this time than I did last time, although I still have the feeling that there is so much about this book that I did, I still don't understand. So you, you said you were frustrated. Was your frustration like a feeling of, I know I'm like, this book is beyond me and I wish it had been explained better in the text or was it a frustration where you were at as a reader? I don't, I, I just, it was, a, fr- it was a frustration with where I was at as a reader that uh, I was used to. So like when I read the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, I could see that he was doing symbolic things with religion and Christianity and I could pick the subtlety up. subtlety didn't, didn't escape you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I was a young, I was a young reader and, and there's something, I think there's something powerful and, and I would say slightly intoxicating in reading something and, and feeling like you're able to pick the story apart and understand at least something of what the author is, is really trying to say. Right. And, yeah. and to say, yeah, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is a cool story. But there's also some really interesting things that he's saying about about Christ and redemption and atonement. And when I read Till We Have Faces, I I had this feeling like, yeah, the story is interesting. Although as a you know 15 year old boy, I didn't find it that interesting. And I knew that I knew that Lewis was trying to say something, but I didn't understand anything of what that deeper thing that he was trying to say was, and it made me frustrated mostly with myself that I just, I couldn't get it. I did. I didn't get it. Okay. All right. Uh, do you want to give a quick synopsis of what the story is about that you weren't able to get as a teenager? <laughs> yeah. So this is, it's, it, it's simply a retelling of the Greek myth of Cupid and Psyche. And that, that story is basically, there's a, a king. He has three daughters uh, the youngest daughter is called Psyche, and she is mind-blowingly beautiful. <laughs> and the gods get mad at her, and and they basically take her away, and she has to go through a series of trials, and um, and eventually she becomes a goddess, and she gets married to Cupid. Um, I mean, like, I guess spoilers on a... <laughs> <laughs> on a story that's <laughs> multiple thousand years old <laughs> as old yeah as old as story itself um so lewis uh, read this and was fascinated with the story and and basically rewrote a novelization of this story told from the point of view of one of the sisters who is ugly <laughs> yes and like truly um, ugly or comparatively ugly no, no, truly, ugly. truly ugly, as in like no one recognize, uh, like people forget she's a woman. <laughs> yeah, no, she is. Described. She is really, truly, hideously ugly. She spends mo- most of her life wearing a veil. Yeah, because people can't stand to look at her face. Yes, but that kind of the emphasis on that definitely comes and goes in this novel. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, so if that sounds interesting to you. <laughs> Uh, I would say, um, you know, recommend picking this up. I'm sure you can get it at your local library. Um, we'll have links to it on Amazon. And, uh, I listened to the audible version of this and it's quite good. And, uh, we would just remind you that our podcast, uh, as all of the, uh, all of our episodes are brought to you by audible.com. You get a free audiobook download and a 30 day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash protagonist. They have over 180,000 titles uh, for you to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, 
or your MP3 player. And I would just say, uh, talking about Amazon and Audible, uh, one thing that I thought was awesome uh, that I did with this book that I have not done in the past is if you buy the Kindle version of uh, some books, and this is one of them, then you get uh, the Audible version at a super discounted price. So I paid regular price for the Kindle version of this, and then I got the Audible uh, narration for like three bucks. Okay. And there's a there's this thing called WhisperSync where your Kindle app and your Audible app are in sync with each other. So you can listen to it for a while, and then you can open up your Kindle app, and it opens up to exactly where you were just listening. And then you can read for a while, and then you can open up the Audible app, and it syncs back to where you were just reading, and you can keep going. It is phenomenal. And one of the reasons why I was able to get through this uh, pretty long book in two days. <laughs> yes. Uh, so if you are going to go get that uh, Kindle version, we would recommend that you do that by going to protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. Or yes. if you just want to go get the Audible version by itself, just the audiobook version, you go to audibletrial.com slash protagonist, and you can get that one for free. Yep. All right, some trivia about this. As Todd mentioned, it is a retelling of the myth of Cupid and Psyche, and Lewis apparently was very frustrated <laughs> when he read this myth in uh, in college, and he had thought about trying to do a retelling that was going to, for him, make more sense. He thought the character's motivations just didn't didn't make uh -huh. sense with what his understanding of humanity was. And he actually tried for a little while to do a prose version when he was in heavy into a poetry phase of his creative writing. Uh, or not a prose version. Uh, yeah, like a poetry version. He wanted um, to have... Uh, you know, he, he tried apparently a few different times with different rhyme schemes. And so he said, by the time he finished actually publishing till we have faces, he had been working on it for 30 years. <laughs> if you took in his wow. first stabs at it with, uh, those poetry styles that he abandoned pretty quickly. It seems I, I imagine yeah. some notes of those exist somewhere. Um, but this is the last creative work that he wrote and he thinks he, he was on record as saying it was his most mature and his best work and his good friend, J.R.R. Tolkien agreed with him. <laughs> this was his best. <laughs> um, and Orwal, 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 Orwal is inspired by Lewis's wife, Joy Davidman, who is, their, their relationship is, um, has been adapted into a play that was then adapted into a diff couple different film versions called The Shadowlands. Shadowlands, yeah. So. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to throw this out here. How do you think she felt about being inspired <laughs> about being the inspiration for this hideously ugly woman. <laughs> um, I think it's probably more for like the, uh, what, what Lewis calls the conversion, her internal, her internal characteristics, but, but also the, the conversion that happens. Cause, uh, David Moon had been an atheist that had a, uh, a religious conversion, go. uh, much as Lewis kind of had a deepening religious conversion himself. Yeah. So I'm guessing that is more where he was seeing some of this. <laughs> <laughs> and as it, I mean, if he'd been working on it, like doing a retelling for 30 years, clearly it couldn't all be Joy Davidman. <laughs> right. Because they didn't meet till later on in his writing career. Yep. All right. Well, you ready to give us the full synopsis here? Yeah. So if you're going to go listen to the, the audiobook or, or go to your local library or get this from Amazon, pause this, do that and, and go read it. It's my synopsis is not going to do it justice. This is a really good book. 
All right, we open with a framing device as a woman named Orwal tells her story bitterly <laughs> with lots of complaints against the gods. Uh, Orwal was the ugly daughter of the king of Gloam, a king who for the life of him cannot seem to produce a male heir. The king of Gloam has a Greek slave named Lysias, though he is called the fox or grandfather by Orwal. This slave teaches Orwal Greek language and philosophy and also becomes an advisor to the king. After Orwal's mother dies, the king marries a woman from a neighboring kingdom, and Orwal's stepmother dies in childbirth, but the baby girl survives, and Orwal loves this new stepsister that she has, and she takes care of her. Uh, the stepsister's named Istra, or as the fox or grandfather teaches them in Greek, that would be named Psyche. Psyche grows more and more beautiful, and <laughs> as Todd said in the early summary, like, shockingly beautiful. Like, people can't... Uh, and, like, there's descriptions of this beauty that it's not, like, when you meet her, it's not, like, wow, but then you can't stop thinking about her. <laughs> Anytime you yeah. think of anything beautiful, you think of her from then on. Um, I love Lewis's descriptions of of beauty. And it's, way, I mean, one of the major themes of the book, I think, but he he has a way of describing beauty where you get you get it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so she's growing up, uh, all of his daughters are now growing up there, you know, heading into adolescence. The King of Gloam has some disputes with the priest of Ungit, uh, which is the god that is most revered and worshipped in Gloam. And Orwal has another sister named Redival, I want to say. Uh-huh. That good pronunciation yes. there. Yeah, uh, you got it. And this is the middle sister. You're totally on a roll, by the way, with pronunciation. Thank you. I'm I'm feeling really good about this, and we're just going to write did it you, out. Did you mention that Ungit is Aphrodite? Yeah, so this is, uh, so the kingdom of Gloam is like, uh, uh, on the periphery of the, the Greek kingdoms, and so there's a lot of the, the same gods, but with different names kind of situation. A lot of influence of the Greek, uh, mm-hmm. um, what's the, what's the word for the, the group of gods? What's the word the for pantheon? that? pantheon? Thank you for the Greek pantheon of gods. <laughs> a lot of influence coming out here in the king of Gloam, or the kingdom of Gloam. So Orval has a sister, Redival. This is the middle sister. Redival gets a little amorous with a boy named Taryn, who is then castrated <laughs> when this relationship <laughs> is discovered. Uh, it's harsh. Uh, more and more people are now talking about how beautiful Psyche is as she's growing up. And Redival plans to go tell the priest of Ungit that people are worshipping her until Orwal bribes her not to do this. Um, but then in the kingdom, there's this pestilence and famine and a plague that's in the land. Everyone's getting sick. And the people come to the palace and they're clamoring for Psyche to come out and heal them. So everyone's like so impressed with Psyche's appearance that they're saying she's got, she must have some godlike powers happening. Uh, and it's believed that all of the royal family do have the blood of gods within them. So the king finally relents, and Psyche walks among all the people, and she touches each one, and this is, like, hours on end. Like, she's fainting, but, you know, near the end, but she's gonna go see everyone who's come. Uh, and briefly, people seem to be getting better, and Psyche's beloved. But then, immediately, like, like it's a very brief window, where, like, oh, that worked. But then the famine keeps up, and many of the people who claim to have felt better after Psyche touched them die anyway. And so the people turn against Psyche. Now, the priest of Ungit, uh, who had been quite ill, he's recovered, and he marches to the palace, and he tells the king that there's an accursed person in the kingdom who must be sacrificed to the brute. 
And the brute is either Ungit or Ungit's son or a shadow beast or all of them. It gets a little vague on the details <laughs> as to who this, this brute is. And the priest says that he has cast Lot and the cursed was not among commoners. Then he cast Lots and the cursed was not among the nobles. And then the cast Lots and the cursed was in the palace. And the king thinks that the priest is about to say that he, the king, is the accursed and must be sacrificed. And he freaks out. <laughs> like he orders everyone associated with the priest to be killed, basically. And the priest like says, no, it's, it's not you. It's Psyche. And the king's like, oh, good. And he calms down. And then he remembers that Psyche's his daughter and he's supposed to be sad about that. And so he pretends to be sad. But mostly oh, he's man. just relieved. The king, the king, the king, the king. But the king, he's not so broken up that he's going to delay doing any kind of sacrifice. Like, um, the fox tries to, he like lays out like, here's five ways you could not do this thing. And the king's like, no, I'm, I'm going to do this. <laughs> and so the plan is for Psyche to be taken up to an area, area near the mountains where she's going to be bound to a tree and she's going to be left there for the brute. So they're just going to uh, put her in these iron shackles that are attached to the tree and leave her there. And everyone, you know, takes off and the brute then goes and takes Psyche. Um, and be before this happens, though, Psyche is being held in a locked room until the priest of Ungit has all the preparations done. And Orwal tries to visit Psyche, but there's this guard named Bardia who won't let her in. And Orwal gets a sword and tries to attack Bardia and he disarms her, though he does say, you know what? You're pretty good <laughs> for someone who's never <laughs> picked up a sword in your life. That was, that was okay. I'm trained. I disarmed you immediately, but I was impressed. Uh, but he is moved by Orwal's love for Psyche. And so he lets her in, even though it's completely against all his orders. And Orwal and Psyche have a long chat. Psyche says that she's always been obsessed with the mountains and is curious about the gods and death. So really, I'm okay with all this. <laughs> Really, don't worry about it. <laughs> no, really, I'll be okay. <laughs> and Psyche is taken to be sacrificed, but and Orwal gets super sick. We're talking hallucinations, fever. She's completely delirious for days, and the fox is nursing her back to health. When she starts to get lucid, uh, Fox tells her that the king put on a great show of grief. But things actually have gotten better since the sacrifice happened. So while she was sick, the sacrifice did happen. They went up there, they left her there, and they came back. And things in the kingdom are going much better. So the king is beloved by his people because it looked like he was really sad to do this, but he did it for the good of the kingdom. And Orwell decides that she needs to go up to the mountains and recover Psyche's remains for a proper burial. And Bardia, the guard that let her in to talk with Psyche, he goes with Orwal on her journey. He's impressed with her. He's also teaching her how to use the sword because he was so impressed with that attack that she did. They find the iron bindings that have been used on Psyche open and still attached to the tree, and there's no sign of Psyche anywhere. They were imagining they'd find blood or bones or something, but they can't find anything. In their search, they find a hidden valley, and they see Psyche looking healthy and quite whole, uh, and she's standing by a river. And Psyche invites Orwal to her, but Bardia, who is a firm believer in gods uh, and is very superstitious, he doesn't go. Psyche didn't want him anyway. <laughs> um, so it's just Psyche and Orwal. And when Orwal comes over, Psyche scoops up some water from the river and offers it to Orwal and asks, says, drink wine from this goblet. And Psyche says, like, oh, the goblet is more precious to me than, than the wine. Like, we're just, you know, talk. Orwell kind of thinks they're playing a game at this moment. Uh -huh. But then Psyche explains that after she was left as a sacrifice, the West Wind, and we're not talking about a breeze, but like a godly embodiment of the West Wind came and freed her and took her to a palace that is in this valley. And she has wed a god who lives in this valley and lives in the, and, and Psyche and the god live in the palace now, though she's never seen the face of the god. 
She doesn't even know his true identity. And Orwal isn't sure if Psyche has gone crazy or, or what. She's like, we, we need to go from this valley. And Psyche asks why she would leave when she's now married. And Psyche asks Orwal what she thinks of the palace. And Orwal says, well, where is it? And Psyche says, we're sitting in it right now. <laughs> and they both think the other one is lying. And this is a really awesome sequence. That's right. I love it. Yeah. The, the way this gets presented, um, of Orwal initially thinking Psyche's just playing a game, like they're, you know, like when they were kids and then Psyche saying, what you, what do you mean? You can't see the palace we're sitting in. <laughs> then like it gets presented in a way where as a reader, you're like left questioning, which is valid. Like which, which of these yeah. points of view it's, ch- it's chilling. Yes. It made me think of like the best, uh, M night Shyamalan moments when something twists and you're like, Oh, mm-hmm. this isn't what I thought it was. <laughs> and, yep, and you have to totally. rethink everything that you've seen up to that point. Uh, that moment when she says, we're sitting in the palace did that for me. So Orwal and Bardia, uh, sleep that night at the edge of the valley and Psyche has stayed in the valley and they go all the way back home. And the Fox thinks that Psyche has been taken by this vagabond thief that lives in the mountains who is using her, but her fear. Did you mention that? Did you mention that when Orwal leaves, she looks back and she sees the palace? Okay. Yes. So so there's a moment where she looks back and she thinks she's in the palace, but she kind of blinks and it's gone and. She doesn't know what to make of that. She's kind of more convinced that she saw something, but she won't tell anybody. Yes. And she, she says, she, she says she, in the writing of this book, this is the first time I've ever told anyone that I saw that vision when I looked back. Yeah. She hardly is willing to admit it to herself, but she's, but I do think that inside of her, she's convinced that she saw the palace, but she goes and has this conversation with the Fox and she gets completely mm-hmm. convinced of this other point of view where, um, cause Fox, he's all Greek philosophy and rationality. Yes. And he says, uh, the mountains are full of thieves. One of them found her chained up there and she went crazy out of fear. Um, and he knew what her fears were and he's using that, uh, as an excuse to sleep with her <laughs> where he, he freed her and claimed to be the wind and said, I'm going to take you to my palace or the palace of the God. And he, he, every night he comes pretending to be a God, but it, only when it's dark and she can actually see him. And, uh, the fox says they need to go and rescue Psyche and Orwal agrees, adding that she'll have to kill Psyche to protect her from this life that she's experiencing, you know, being, having been taken by this thief in the, in the mountains, uh, if they're unable to, to bring her home. And Fox is like, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> He's like, whoa, <laughs> slow down. <laughs> That's pretty extreme. But, but Orwal's all like, no, she is royalty. She has blood of the gods and we would never sleep with a, a thief in the mountains. And, uh, this has to stop one way or the other. So Orwal goes back to Psyche, um, who she finds again in the same empty valley and Psyche refuses to come home. And Orwal says that the man who claims to be her husband only comes at night so that Psyche can't see him because he's not really a God. And Psyche says her husband is a God, but he's forbidden her from looking on him. So she's not going to defy his wishes. And Orwal gives Psyche a lamp and tells her light this lamp at night when your husband's asleep so that you can actually look on him. And Psyche says, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, and Orwell says, do it or I'm going to kill myself. And Or it's like, he's like, you're not gonna kill yourself. And Orwell says, watch this. And she stabs herself all the way through the arm <laughs> and starts <laughs> bleeding profusely. <laughs> and so he's like, Oh, okay. Uh, stop. Let's, let's clean that up. So they bind up Psyche's arm. Um, and Orwell swears, uh, on the blade that she's going to do what, uh, or Psyche, Psyche, Psyche swears on Orwell's blade that she will light the lamp that night. And that night, uh, Orwell is again at the edge of the valley and she's looking out over it and she sees the light 
from the lamp. Like all of a sudden there's this bright light in the valley. So she knows that Psyche has done this. And then all hell breaks loose in the valley. <laughs> Storms are blowing, winds everywhere. Rocks are literally breaking. The earth is rending. And Orwell actually sees a godlike figure who tells Orwell that Psyche is now cursed. And Orwell runs into the valley and tries to find Psyche, but she, she can't reach her. And so returning home, Orwell begins veiling her face. And she... Uh, also when she's home, she keeps practicing with Bardia, but now she keeps her face veiled all the time. Uh, the king injures himself and Orwal begins acting as queen even before he dies. Like it's a mortal wound. He's going to die from this broken, he breaks, uh, a leg, but it's, it can't be repaired and they know he's going to die. But right away, or like there's some hard decisions that have been made and Orwal just steps into this leadership role immediately. And everyone around her is like really impressed. Like, Oh, <laughs> Yeah, she's, she's, she's she a natural. Is, she is really good. <laughs> yeah. Um, and as she's going around with her veiled face now and being queen, uh, she encounters a man named, uh, Trunia, uh, who asks for asylum. He's, he wants to be protected from his brother Argon. And Argon rules a neighboring country that is called Fars. And Orval gives him asylum without consulting anyone else. <laughs> and then Argon comes with an army and kind of says, Hey, do you guys have my brother? And everyone else is like, no, we don't have your brother. She's like, Oh guys, guys, we have his brother here, by the way. <laughs> and everyone's like, well, what are we going to do now? Um, and Orwal knows that her country is still too weak because of all those famines and diseases. They don't have a strong army built back up. So she issues a challenge to Argon for individual combat, one-on-one, with the fate of Trunia to be decided by this duel. If Gloam's champion wins, Trunia will become king of Fars uh, and take the place of Argon. And as king, it's assumed that Trunia is going to keep the peace between Gloam and Fars. If Argon wins, he can take Trunia back home with him and it's presumed kill him. Uh, and Orwal plans to be the champion from Gloam fighting with her veil on, but still clearly a woman, which is just going to be insulting to Argon if she wins. <laughs> well, that they send a woman at all. And Orwal, um, in around this time, she also frees Fox from his enslavement. So this whole time he's been like a father figure to her, not just a teacher, but really, you know, family to her, but he's been a slave. So as soon as she's becoming queen, she frees him uh, and says, you can go back to Greece, but he says, I'm going to stay here and be your counsel. And, uh, Orwal goes to the, the duel and she gives Argon a, a wound that's going to kill him. Like he's going to bleed out. There's no way they can repair this. And around the same time, the king dies. And now or- Orwal is the queen, both because the king has died, but also because everyone now respects her because she did this for Gloam. And, uh, she becomes a really good queen and she modernizes the entire kingdom. She fixes up its infrastructure more than her father ever did. She gets the mines operating better than they ever have before. She fixes the politics of the place, which was always really conniving and backstabbing. She essentially cleans house and makes it all better. And um, then as a queen, she's now traveling to some neighboring kingdoms and she comes across a shrine to a goddess named Istra. And she's never known of this goddess before. So she asks the priest for the story of Istra. And he tells a version of what happened with Orwal and Psyche and their life um, about three daughters, uh, about the youngest uh, being taken by the gods, uh, but it's jealous sisters go and ruin things for this, uh, for this youngest one named Istra. So it's her life story, but th- everything's been twisted. And Orwal, in this version, Orwal and Redivold visit Istra in her new palace, and they're so jealous of her that they hatch a plan to ruin her happiness. And hearing this, Orwal is just furious, and she says, I have to write the true story of her life in a book. And that's the book that we've been reading. We, um, should, we should point out that the version that the priest gives of psyche's story is the, the original standard. greek yeah 
the, the classic Greek version that we have. I mean, by original, I mean the version that we <laughs> have existing. I mean, C.S. Lewis would say that his is the original. Yes. <laughs> and that the other one is a twisted version of his. Yes. But So, uh, Orwell has kind of made this change in her mind where that when she started to wear the veil, she buried Orwell and that she became the queen of gloom. She thought of herself as the queen now and not as Orwell. But hearing this false version of her life, it reawakens Orwell and she remembers everything that she kind of buried. Uh, and now she writes the book that we are reading. And then this is like pretty far into the book. Now it says part two. <laughs> <laughs> so an embassy from Persia comes to see Gloam and, uh, Tarin or Taryn, uh, is that the name for, did I get the name right? Yeah, Taryn is the guy okay. who at the very beginning had slept with uh, Redival. Redival and become a eunuch. Yes. Uh, so he is in charge of this embassy from Persia. And he, like, they recognize each other and they talk some about, hey, remember when we were kids and I became a eunuch? <laughs> <laughs> and he asks about Redival. And he says, I was always attracted to Redival. Actually, I was, I was taking pity on her um, because she was so sad because Orwell, you only ever gave attention to Psyche. After Seki was born, and same with uh, your your teacher, he only talked about Psyche, and Redival just felt neglected, and Orwell had never considered that at all. She just thought her sister Redival was a loon, basically <laughs> was was just jealous. Um, and uh, around this time, Bardia also dies, and in visiting Bardia's wife, Orwell learns that though she and Bardia were never romantically in love. Orwell's complete trust and reliance on, and yes, love for Bardia, forced him to give up much of his life in service to the kingdom of Gloam. And a comparison is made to the love the shadow brute feels for its victim, the love that devours the subject of its affection. Um, and so, like, twice in a row now, Orwell is seeing some damaging effects of, of love and friendship, uh, or a kind of love that she was expressing that was never uh -huh. romantic. Uh, but it was having some negativity. Uh, so now depressed Orwell attempts to go and kill herself, but a commanding voice stops her. It's like a voice from a God. And then, uh, later on in a dream, Orwell is taken to a court of the gods where she reads her complaints against them, uh, over and over. And she realizes that her complaint, which she had felt was so valid is really just kind of absurd. And it's kind of childish, <laughs> um, her anger at the gods for not being more clear, uh, for not expressing, uh, themselves for only appearing periodically in people's lives. And she views it as always, uh, being a negative impact when the gods do appear. And then after this, she has another vision. And this time it's a vision of Psyche. Um, and the fox, her old mentor, is her guide, like a, the ghost of the fox. He's, he's died. And he's her guide through this dreamlike place. Um, and, and she watches uh, Psyche completing tasks, which are the tasks that the original myth had her doing. That um, mm -hmm. after she was banished from the palace, she had to complete these tasks before she became a god and could return. Um, and so... Uh, Orwell sees all that happening and then she has a conversation with Psyche and this is right after Psyche's completed the last task from the myth and then voices uh, she started to hear voices saying he's coming, the god is coming and it says that the earth and the, the stars and the sun were made for his sake and uh, Psyche and Orwell standing at the edge of a pool and when Orwell uh, looks down she only sees like a double of herself and Psyche together and like all through the book, the difference between these two has been made so apparent that there's no way their reflection should actually look similar. Mm -hmm. uh, and a voice says, you also are psyche. And then she awakes from her dream and uh, she writes like a few more sentences in the book and dies. And like the sentence stops mid sentence. <laughs> and then 
it's like the mines of Moria. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, and so the last sentence that she writes is, I ended my first book with the words, so part one, I ended my first book with the words, no answer. I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. Before your, fa- your face questions die away, what other answer would suffice? Only words, words to be led out to battle against other words. Long did I hate you. Long did I fear you. I might. The end. <laughs> it trails <laughs> off there. And then there's this tiny epilogue from a priest who kind of says, Orwell wrote this. She seems to be writing to the Greeks, and we hope to hand this off to Greek or, or, or to someone who's going to Greece so they can take it with them. The end. And that is how the book ends. Oh, man. Good job. Thank you. There's a lot in this story. (laughs) Holy cow. It really, it, yeah, there is. (laughs) It's really, it it, is, there is packed with stuff. Yeah. Symbolism, themes that are interwoven and that you kind of forget Mm -hmm. about. And then they come back and get really made explicit for a little bit. Uh, It's a really dense text. I, I'll tell you the, the one, the one thing that was similar with my reading it this time and the reading it the first time is just that sense of the density of the story that there is so much here. And I feel like I was able to get a little bit (laughs) out of it this time, but my goodness, it's just, it's so dense. There's so much stuff, like you said, thematically and symbolically, uh, metaphorically, there's a lot going on here. So one of the first things that I started to notice and I, I think it, it was maybe the priest when he comes to talk to the king and the fox tries to like do this logic battle with him. And some of what gets said, you, uh, I started to notice like appearing over and over this idea where it's not binaries that are separate. It's binaries that can be the same thing uh-huh. that we tr- traditionally think of as opposites, but they, they actually can be one. So two sides of the same coin where, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're unified. So, I think in that, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, in that discussion with the priest, uh, what the fox tries to argue is like, well, how can you say this is a holy, like a sacrifice to a holy being if it's a monster that comes to devour? And the priest is like, well, the holy can be monstrous. <laughs> like, that's not exclusive. Right. And he's kind of like baffled. Like, why would, who would argue, <laughs> you know, <laughs> against that? Which, um, on the face of it, you can think it's kind of odd, but even in like traditional Christian scripture, all the times when an angel appears, the first thing they have to say is fear not. <laughs> like yeah. the very first word out of any angel's mouth is fear not because I yeah. know I'm freaking you out. I, I, and so I think uh, from C.S. Lewis's traditional Christian point of view, which as you've already said in like Chronicles of Narnia, it's heavily influenced by Christianity. Sure. Even in there, I think there is a blending of the holy and the monstrous that we don't always typically think about. Uh-huh. Um, but there are lots of others of these kind of opposites that become one. So male and female. So, uh, mm-hmm. Orwell, uh, starts, you know, feeling like an ugly woman, but as she becomes the queen and the leader, she takes on all these masculine attributes. She starts training with the sword. She veils her face, which, uh, she says, as she veils her face, immediately people start treating her differently <laughs> because, mm-hmm. because they no longer see her as an ugly woman. There's also this idea of like the slave who's really the teacher or the intellectual that ends up, you know, running the court in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I'm sure we could just keep going with these binaries that actually become one thing, even though they would seem like they, they should be opposites. Yeah. It, it's one of the things that's interesting to me is to see the Fox who I think I think one of the interesting things that 
that Lewis does through this story is he does this like bait and switch with us. Um, and it becomes really apparent in the scene where that we talked about earlier, where um, Orwell goes and, and meets Psyche on the mountain. And you realize that they are seeing two completely, completely different things. And the Fox up to that point has seemed like such a stable, He's very logical and philosophical. And he's right. You know, he's... And he's right. <laughs> yes, it, it, exactly. Y- you are so convinced of his rightness. And you see the the priests of Ungit and how just kind of, like, disgusting they are, right? They're, they always smell of, of blood and flesh. Fat. and and yeah and fat and greasy and um and 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 the burning and there's this there's this kind of nausea that's associated with them and and it's so easy for fox to pick apart all of their arguments and and you're totally on board with it until you realize that there may be something <laughs> maybe something else going on here that even fox does not you know what? really understand the, the gods might be involved <laughs> in a way yeah. that Fox doesn't accept at all. Yeah. Um, and this, I, I think part of what you're getting at here with these, instead of binaries, you have two sides of the same coin is that Fox wants to see the world in binaries. And there's this other way of seeing the world in which the the boundaries between these things are at least permeous if not non-existent yeah and and it's maddening for a philosopher to to try to navigate that right so are you is she getting married or is she going to be killed <laughs> and the priests are like um yes <laughs> oh, is it ungut or is it ungut's son yeah yeah it's both <laughs> And, and it's, and it's really, really frustrating. And, um, I think Lewis is saying something about, about really fundamentally different ways of viewing the world and that the, the way, the way of seeing of, of a believer is understandably really frustrating for someone, for someone who's not a believer. And I love that he tells this story through Orwall's eyes and we see that frustration. It's, it's one of the, one of the first points in the book for me where I thought, man, this is, this is really fascinating. And it, and it, um, it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like your basic, like CS Lewis, I'm just going to spell everything out for you. And in these really clear, like, I'm going to beat you over the head with this super <laughs> obvious metaphor. Um, in this book, he's doing something I think far more difficult, which is he's really trying to see these things from all sides in an honest way. It feels far more mature and uh, complex. Yes. And. I don't know if, like, his, his Chronicles of Narnia, great stories. But as you I said, love them. they are kind of simplistic as far as how hard it is to find the meaning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, the moral of the story is told pretty clearly, and the symbolism is told pretty, like, on the face. It's not like, find the hidden meanings and symbolism. It's like, 
here is this thing. Let me tell you exactly what this thing represents according to Christian tradition. Yes. Uh, this one, I still don't know that I understand exactly what he's doing as far as where he wants a reader or what he wants the message that reader takes away to be. Can you understand kind of that feeling that I was describing before where you know that there's something there, but you're not sure that you're able to unpack it. 100%. And like, after I finished reading and as I was preparing our, our trivia and the notes and like writing this, the synopsis, I looked into some interpretations. People do not agree <laughs> on some of these interpretations yeah. of how to take this story. Like some say uh, that the God who's coming at the end is talking about Christianity sweeping away the, the Greek gods. And uh-huh. others are like, no, that's Cupid. <laughs> it's, it's yeah. Cupid, Cupid coming and saying, uh, you know what? I love Psyche. Uh, she's a mortal who was able to elevate herself up to God, Godhood, and you are psyche too. Like you could elevate yourself. Like that's within mortals. Uh-huh. Uh, and I, both those interpretations seem to be present in this text. <laughs> like, yeah. like you could defend them from the text that we have because it doesn't, the author doesn't come out and exclusively say, here's what you're, how you're supposed to interpret this the way that we get in some of the Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah, I I just I think that one uh, among the many themes that he explores here for me today reading this I think the one that stood out to me the most was the theme of belief and I I just to think about the heartache of that Orwall feels when <laughs> when she's trying to convince Psyche to come off of the mountain and Psyche has had an experience that Orwal simply cannot understand. And, and there, there's no, there's no way of, of bridging that gap between the two. And it's heartbreaking. I mean, it's, it's chilling. And, um, but I think it's, I think it's, real. <laughs> I, I mean, I think those things really happen. I had a professor one time who said, um, he said, I envy you um, for being a believer. And this guy was totally not a believer. <laughs> and he said, I envy you. And I said, why? And he said, I feel like I'm spiritually tone deaf. Like you can hear a music that I, I simply cannot hear. And I wish that I could, but I can't. And I see how your life seems to be enriched by your ability to hear this music, but I honestly cannot hear it. I tried, and I can't. And it was such an interesting uh, conversation for me. And as I read this, um, this, this episode in this book where Psyche is telling her, I am living in a palace and it is beautiful. (laughs) And I have this amazing divine lover who comes to me every night and puts me in ecstasy. And I have all of these uh, servant girls who, who serve me and I'm drinking the nectar of the gods constantly. And, and, uh, and Orwa looks at her and she can't deny the fact that Psyche seems happy. And that she she even can't deny the fact that she looks healthy. Her skin looks healthy and ruddy and and everything. But she but she also sees that she's dressed in rags, and there is no palace. <laughs> and I just I think 
I don't know. There was something really um, sad in that. And, and I think Lewis really captures that, the frustration that, that exists between people who love each other and yet see two different things in completely different ways. And I think what, like the moment where it's most heartbreaking is where they think they've been saying the same thing and then they realize, oh no, <laughs> we, yeah. we are having two different conversations, even though at the beginning of the scene, so when, when, uh, Psyche scoops up water and says, here, drink this wine. And Orwell says the, the cup is more precious to me than the wine talking about like, I, I have your hands. Her I hand. thought you were dead. I th- I'm have your hands right. in mine now. Like we're, we're touching hands. That's more precious to me. Uh, but then later on after Orwell says, wait, you think you live in a palace? And it's like, he's like, yeah, where's the cup I gave you? <laughs> I handed you a cup. <laughs> what did you do with it? Yeah. And, and so you have to go back and rethink that, that conversation, like reset according to the different worldviews that you now know are there, but they start. And that's why it's so heartbreaking for all or while they start. And she thinks, Oh, you know, I have my psyche back and we're having this conversation and we're playing. Um, but I'm going to like, get serious now and say, we got to go home because <laughs> you're going to die out here in the wilds. And that's when she realizes there's the psyche. It's not the psyche that she thought she had. Yeah. I mean, this is so well-written that it's like, I'm almost convinced that, that CS Lewis like lost his faith or something <laughs> at the end of his life in writing this. It feels like the kind of thing that could only be written by somebody on the other side. There's a, there's a, a, a beautiful novel called The Voices of the Pamano that's a Catalan novel. And there's a there's a, a similar kind of scene in which there are these parents, these Spanish parents, and their son has become a, uh, a monk. <laughs> They're like, you're going to be a monk? And he's like, yeah, I'm happy. And they just, they can't see it. Uh, that's written from a from a, the point of view of the of the secularist, right? Of the person who who feels the weight, the sadness of seeing their son leave. Um, and this feels like it's written from that same point of view. It's, it's a beautiful piece of writing um, in which Lewis, I think, completely embodies that, that sadness and that feeling of my loved one has completely gone off their rocker. <laughs> and yeah. Oh, and I think, like you said, though, we get all sorts of different perspectives on it. Yes. So you have Psyche's complete belief of what her experience is. You have Orwell's kind of mixed belief slash, like, maybe? Maybe not. Yeah. Maybe. And you have the fox, who 100% is just rational. Like, no, there are no gods at play here. <laughs> right. <laughs> She's just got a little crazy out of fear, but we can straighten her out once we get her home. We just got to get her home. <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, where do we go from here? Well, I think this is one that can kind of, it's another note I had, and I think it fits in with going back to the idea of these binaries that can be two different opposite things, but one at the same time, uh, in this story and the idea of love, uh, in part two, we get this idea that love actually is hurt a lot Uh of, uh, Orwell's relationships, which is just. It's very interesting to me. It was not a theme I expected at all. <laughs> and, right. And um, the idea that her love of Psyche had hurt her relationship so much with, uh, what's the other sister's name? All of a sudden, I forgot. Redaball. 
Yeah. And that, oh, you read that story, like you see it presented and you don't see Redival's point of view until it's told you in part two, which is where, mm-hmm. uh, Orwell is saying, oh, I just found out some stuff and I'm going to put it here and it doesn't make me look good, but I'm still going to tell you. Yeah. And then the, I really loved the conversation between Bardia's wife and, uh, mm-hmm. Orwell where Orwell's kind of like, I love Bardia so much. If I'd known he was ailing, like he, he essentially worked himself to death. is <laughs> what right. we're told, uh, out of loyalty to the kingdom and to Orwell personally. And party is like, I had no idea. And if he had said anything, I would have, of course, let him come home to you and like retire and be home with you, which would have been better for you and for him. And she's like, and the wife is like, did you even know my husband? <laughs> like he would never <laughs> ever have said anything like that. And, and, and Orwell still kind of defensive. It was like, well, you could have said something and I would have, you know, sent him home. And the line that, uh, Bardia's wife says is make him so mine that he was no longer his. Like, uh-huh. like the thing I loved about him was like all of this, like his, his willingness to work, his, his loyalty to the kingdom. Right. Uh, and it, if I tried to like claim him that I'd lose the thing that I love about him, but also he would cease to be him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Bardia's wife obviously understood her husband so much better than Orwell did, even though throughout all the story, it's like, this is like such a close relationship and so much trust exists between these two. All of a sudden we see that in some ways that uh, trust and, and even love blinded Orwell to who Bardia was. Uh huh. There's this, um, the, there's a, there's a comic. It's the first issue of, I think it's Thor season one. I'm going to say it's like maybe 2015, 2014. Mm-hmm. And at the very last page of it, um, the fates are talking. And one of them says, uh, they talk about like the, the tapestry of humanity and how uh, all of the, all of our lives are woven together. Um, and I think that that's one of the themes of this book also is that um, all of these people's lives are woven together in ways that like really nobody is independent. And it's interesting that he talks so much about slavery and freedom. Um, and in a way we are all tied to each other, just like, just like the slaves are. I mean, there's not that much difference between uh, Fox, the slave and Fox, the free man. Um, he's, he's tied to the, he's tied to Orwall the same. Um, but then the, at, at the end of this, uh, comic, they say, uh, something to the effect of, it's not the things we do that make us who we are, but what we choose to love. And as you were talking about Bardia and how this kind of catch 22 that the, the, the wife is in, in which she she resents Orwal for the way that uh, essentially for existing, right? Yes. <laughs> because it's not anything that Orwal has done in particular, but, but the fact that she exists and that her husband has consumed his life, uh, serving her. And, and Orwal says, man, if I'd have known, I just let him go. And then you, and and then the wife says, no, you don't get it. Like, Without you, he wouldn't be the man that I love. And, and I mean, without his, his love and devotion to you, he, would, he wouldn't 
Winnie the Man that I love. And it's it's like try and pull that apart, right? Yeah, but and that love and devotion make, killed him. <laughs> right. And try to make any of these people stand up in isolation and they all fall down. Um they they all stand up by by leaning on and depending on each other. Not in a not in a like we're all in this together kind of thing, but but in in the fact that they're all threads in this in this tapestry. If you pull one thread out, then the whole thing unravels. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think that ties in really nice with the next note I had about Oral's anger at the gods for taking Psyche from her. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is just, she is a bitter, <laughs> bitter woman <laughs> about about this. Um, and she's so full of anger. But this course of events, the you know, the sequence of her. Uh, you know, trying to go and get into the room with Psyche that leads to her fighting, uh, Bardia, which leads to Bardia training her in how to fight. Uh, uh-huh. which then in the end, uh, that leads to Orwell being able to fight, uh, the, the king from the other country that earns her the respect of the entire kingdom. And literally, the entire kingdom is enriched and benefited <laughs> because of the yeah. sequence of events. Cause Orwell is a really good queen. Uh, uh-huh. But if she hadn't had the cycle of events that happened for which she blames the God and she's bitter towards the God, everyone's life would have been worse. Right. But she's so obsessed with, um, this moment where she lost the thing that she loves that she almost is oblivious to the fact that she's one of the best rulers (laughs) that her kingdom ever has had. And that it's literally because of this sequence of events that happens with Psyche being taken up to be sacrificed. Yeah, there's, um, I think it's interesting that you mentioned, uh, Tolkien, uh, that this was Tolkien's favorite book of, of, that Lewis wrote, um, in the first chapter of the Silmarillion, which is a lesser known, (laughs) uh, Tolkien book that has all kinds of, is that the one that was unfinished? It's the mythology of Middle Earth. Yeah. But was it unfinished when he died? Mm, I think it was, was. Yeah. Okay. I think it, mm, no, I think he maybe finished this. That one was finished there. Okay. Um, but uh, the somewhere first there's a listener that, that's yelling at their earbuds right I know. now. <laughs> I'm sorry. How dare you? <laughs> I know we, we, we're pretty, we're, I, I think you and I both have, uh, we're both pretty good nerds, but there are, <laughs> we don't know there everything. are limits. <laughs> um, the, in the first chapter of the Silmarillion, there it, it's it's Tolkien's description of how Middle Earth was created, and there's there's this sort of head elf, and he's organized these like minor elf. May I step in real quick? Yes. I just checked the recesses of my mind, which, for my geek cred, I want to say I spelled this correctly as I typed it into Google. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was edited and published posthumously by his son. By his son. So. Okay kind of finished but it so wasn't we, ready for publication we were both right yes um so he he describes this creation of this thing and it, it the 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 world is created through song so there are these these elf kind of spirits and they're blind and they're singing and the the head elf is um like conducting the music and then there's a one of the elves that's bad and he sings out of harmony he tries to he tries to ruin the harmony and the head elf is able to take everything else that's going on and he weaves he weaves the 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 
the melody in such a way that it takes the disharmony and creates harmony again. And he does this over and over and over again. Every time the bad elf tries to ruin the song, uh, the good elf just takes everything that's going on and weaves it all back together for for good. And then in the end, he opens everybody's eyes and they've created Middle Earth with their song. And I wonder if... The, the, I may be way, way out there on this, but but I wonder if there's something of that going on here in which um, it looks like things are really bad, right? And and um, Orwell's anger and the fact that the, the people are really acting in in ways that that are that are criticizable. I think um, the the priests do, you know, weird, dark things. Um, and yet somehow good comes of all of this. And I think that what part of what we're getting in the second book, and I think the second book is where it gets really hard for me to understand what C.S. Lewis is really trying to say. But I wonder if part of that is saying that there, a, there is a God and B that God has things under control. <laughs> and regardless, or in spite of, and sometimes, I mean, sometimes because of, and sometimes in spite of what we do, the, that, God, that God, you know, will come and will make things right in the end. I don't know. I may be... No, I, <laughs> I, I like what you said. <laughs> um, it really is not clear at all. I mean, I can, I can, I can, well, I told I you would two totally interpretations I already got. Of... <laughs> I, I found online. Yeah, and I, I imagine that it that you could do a reading of this that says, "No, C.S. Lewis completely lost his faith at the end of his life," and, <laughs> and you could make a valid argument based on this book be, because of that. It's it's really opaque what's going on at the end there. Which but is knowing I, everything else that yeah. I know about what C.S. Lewis has written, that's my best guess at, at that. That's my best interpretation of the end of this book. And I think the one reason why this feels so, I, I think it probably even feels more opaque than it really is because it's C.S. Lewis and we're used to C.S. Lewis being very explicit. <laughs> yes. Um, and so to have something that's so vague, if I think we, we probably react and make it even more <laughs> vague than the text itself, or we react as though like this is just imp- impenetrable in some ways. Uh, maybe, <laughs> but it is pretty big. <laughs> it, it, it feels pretty really impenetrable. To me. I mean, if you hold this up, if you hold this up against, well, yeah, certainly the Chronicles of Narnia for sure. Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which I think is probably the most sort of religiously explicit, like of, one to one ratio of <laughs> of what happens to yeah. What, but yeah, then you, I mean, hold it up to things like Mere Christianity or the Screw Tape Letters or the Great Divorce, and uh, and all of a sudden, uh, like you said, like held up in contrast to those, this is just completely inscrutable. Um, but you want to dissect it, and it re- rewards that kind of deep thought. Yeah, I think that it does, and. Like I like I said at the beginning, it feels it feels complex in a in in the right ways. <laughs> I think. I mean, the fact that I read this as a young man and and felt frustrated, like I said earlier, it I never had the impression that it was bec- that it was the book's fault, but that it I I just was not ready. I was not ready to read this book when I was fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I was ready to read it now because I'm still a little. 
it's I, it's kind of mind blowing. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, like I still don't know what to make of the that part two. <laughs> yeah. So one of the thing, one of, another of the themes that I thought was really interesting in this is the theme of beauty, and the Greeks, the Greeks have this idea of beauty that says um, that the the external and internal beauty should match. So, I mean, that's why the emphasis on the the gymnasium and the Olympics and and having a, a physically beautiful body. Um, and that that would be mirrored in an equally beautiful soul. And there's even, I was talking with a friend of mine yesterday who's a Greek scholar, and he was saying that um, that Greeks would really get upset if somebody that was beautiful <laughs> was acting in in uh, immoral ways because that's deceit, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you're you're you are you're being deceitful to the world if you're beautiful on the outside and ugly on the inside and um and there's this interesting reversal of that in Orwal who is uh, hideous on the outside and yet despite her own um self-criticism i think that she's beautiful on the inside and her leader all of her leadership tells us she, she is a remarkable woman and and they you have this disconnect that would have driven the Greeks crazy <laughs> uh between her inside and her and her outside which I think is interesting i I just made me realize how much we've carried over some of that tradition into our storytelling uh-huh. today, where uh like in all of our popular culture you know the the protagonists are the rugged, good-looking individuals. And yes. So, I mean, think about, like, Batman, where the villains are all grotesque and deformed. Um, See Suicide Squad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and it's something that we... Or, or even... Um, I'm trying to remember... Uh, what was the controversy? Uh, the Da Vinci Code. Like, there's a big controversy that the bad guy was an albino, and, like, albinos everywhere. Like, why... <laughs> like, wh- right. We're so infrequently portrayed... <laughs> In popular culture, why is it always <laughs> as the villain? And like one of the defenses was, well, that's like we always like a visual marker that others, you know, the the villain in some way to be a, you know the a scar or anything like this right. is a classic tradition of storytelling. Um, and sure. for the Da Vinci Code, he happened to use albino, which the, I understand all the issues that were loaded by, with that community and the reaction that they had. But it goes all the way back to Greek <laughs> storytelling, right. uh, and um, the that of so many of our our storytelling traditions are coming out of that in so many ways. But I I hadn't even realized that that aspect of it goes all all the way there. Yeah, that's uh, that's where where we get it. <laughs> the Greeks, that's we where owe you get them. Batman's rogues gallery. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's interesting to even think about. I mean, thinking about Suicide Squad, um, to think about like Harley Quinn. Who, on the one hand, is is supposed to be like beautiful and uh, and attractive and sexualized, and yet on the other hand, I, I haven't seen the film, but I've seen you know the trailers and the and the images from the film, and they do things to sort of mar her, right? So she has this weird uh, makeup that's always like smeared, and there's like they 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 do things to to mark her as ugly <laughs> yeah but without like like let's not you know let's not completely ruin it but 
you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting thing I think. But um, just to think about Orwall and and psyche and the relationship and the idea of beauty, I think there's a really deep exploration of that in this book. And I love in this inscrutable finale that we <laughs> aren't quite sure we fully <laughs> understand. Like one of the key moments is seeing herself as psyche in the reflection. Yes. And the voice saying, you are also Psyche. And I, and I don't know exactly what that means. <laughs> this well, he says that to her at the very beginning. The first time that the god speaks to her, he says, you are Psyche. Doesn't he? Uh, or does he valley? say, you are Ungit? Which, which time the gods talk? <laughs> so the, the, when... So uh, Orwal tells Psyche to take the lamp and the knife. Okay. And then she sees the light, and then all hell breaks loose in the in the valley and the voice calls to her and says, you are, I think he says you are psyche, but there's also, and this is, this goes back to your, your first point about two sides of the same coin or these, um, these blurry borders between, uh, issues of identity because Orwal is Orwal. Uh, she's a woman and she's a man. Uh, she is at various times in this story, Orwal. She's the king. She's the queen. She's Ungit. And she's Psyche. And she's... It, anyway, it's very... Like, her her identity is so fluid. In oh, this and it's book. even... Um, like, she she's ugly and, and ignored. Uh, then, uh, like, she's able to be trained as a soldier almost because she's forgotten that she's a woman. But when she veils her face and covers it, there's two versions as to why she covers her uh -huh. face that go out. That she's so ugly that it's she can't be looked upon. Or she's so beautiful that uh, she almost she doesn't want to be uh, taken by the gods like Psyche was <laughs> for being no, too beautiful. No, it's, it's, that, it's that she's so beautiful that the gods have told her she has to keep oh, herself right. veiled or yeah. they will they will, like obliterate her <laughs> if she uncovers her face then and, she's done with and when she has her face covered that's when she has the the really flirtatious conversation with uh what's the guy's name with the t uh so, oh uh tania turia turin i don't know the, the one that's seeking asylum <laughs> oh yeah yeah uh trunia right is that i yeah. can't remember um but it, part of it is because her face is veiled and there's this kind of mystery about who is this woman. Uh, and, and so it adds to her power to kind of hide that. Whereas Psyche's power often came from her beauty. So it's just, yeah, lots of, lots okay. of interesting. <laughs> so connections. we're pretty far, we're pretty far into this conversation. I feel like we cannot end without discussing the title of this book okay. and what and it actually means that it comes from. All right. Yes. So the, the quote is because it is um, such a strange title. Yes. <laughs> uh, I saw well. This is the exact quote. I saw well why the gods do not speak to us openly nor let us answer till the word can be dug out of us. Why should they hear the battles that we think we mean? How can they meet us face to face till we have faces? Um, so this is after Orwell has kind of realized that her complaints against the gods were kind of like the, it's just whining of a child. <laughs> and, uh -huh. uh, and so she says, well, this is why, like I've been yelling at the gods my whole life and this mm -hmm. is why they didn't answer to us. Cause I, I now realize I didn't know what my complaint was. Like I, I hadn't actually formed an argument. I was just babbling as it says. 
And how can they meet us face to face till we have faces? So what does that mean? <laughs> so let's try and, so let's try and, uh, pick this part maybe sentence by sentence. So right, he says, before we do this, let me just throw in, I didn't put this in the trivia. There was an original title before till we have faces. It was Bareface, B-A-R-E, I think. I actually go to Interesting. Right but uh, public, or the publisher said, mm, sounds too much like a Western. <laughs> and <laughs> asked him to change it. Okay. So it says, I saw well why the gods do not speak to us openly nor let us answer. So, so Orwell's beef with the gods is that they're mysterious. And they don't act in a way that is transparent <laughs> and that's really frustrating for her it's frustrating for her that they let her think that her sister was dead and then her sister was alive and why didn't they just show her the palace because they could have I mean, they could this all of this could have unfolded in a way that that would have been way easier on on uh on orwall and it wasn't so why don't they speak to us openly and and why don't they let us answer uh, till the word can be dug out of us, why should they hear the babble that we think we mean? So, so this what, is, what do you make of that? This is, uh, Fox had, had told her this, that, um, like the, is, doesn't it sound like the, but the true use of language is actually to say exactly what you mean. And yes. no one does it. <laughs> like we all, uh, first of all, we don't always know what we mean and we just talk. And words don't actually serve us when that's what's happening. And she realizes. <laughs> Which is I, basically. The what last right one hour and 10 minutes. <laughs> yes. Uh, but, but she says my whole, like the whole book I wrote, which in, in, to, to a certain level was a diatribe against the gods. Right. She realized, she says, I didn't know what my argument against the gods was. And I didn't see what they saw. I didn't see truth yet. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't know what I needed to say. So of course the gods weren't going to answer me when I wasn't even making a case. So that word that she's talking about when she's when she says till the word can be dug out of us why should they hear the babble that we think we mean the word in that case would be the Cons- true uh, in the in the meaning. terms of the fox <laughs> yeah the thing that we mean exactly the thing that we mean nothing more nothing less in the most concise possible and clearest possible terms until we're able to say that everything else that we say is just babbling okay and then and how can they how meet can us? They meet us face to face till we have phases. Ah, uh, face to face. There's an issue of equality that's there, uh-huh. um, but also this idea of till we have faces. I think there's an issue of identity uh, that's definitely at play and certainly is prevalent throughout this text. When your main character yeah. walks around with a veiled face uh, for most of the text, I think. Yeah, so I, th- I think about the face to face. I think of like Moses spoke with God face to face. Mm-hmm. And so there is, I mean, in, in biblical tradition, we have a precedent for, for man being able to enter into a face-to-face conversation with God, although it does not happen <laughs> very often. And then I think you're, I think you're totally on in that this book has so much to do about identity and and how do we talk to God face to face if we don't know who we are, right? I mean, Orwell. And, well, and is... then with, within that, how can we know who the gods are, right? Yeah. If we don't know who we are, like if we can't sort out ourselves. Why are we railing against the gods <laughs> and assuming we understand them? If we if it's if we can't understand ourselves, 
how can we possibly hope <laughs> to understand the gods? So we need to work out our own identity before we can start. I mean, again, she's angry at the gods and she is almost directive as to what she thinks they should have done. Right. And they're saying, you don't even know what you should do. (laughs) Yes. What, how would you think to presume to know what we should do? And they, and they never actually even say that this is all stuff that she works out in, in this incessant repetition of her, frustration with the gods she real she realizes how absurd that is and and that's her answer her answer is it comes from within not from without so there's another uh c.s lewis essay which is what much more concise and direct uh <laughs> called uh the trouble with x and in that he talks about how everyone when they talk about a problem that they're having, be it at work or in home or with, you know, with a spouse or with a child, uh, we always like consider all the variables except for ourselves. Like we're the X factor actually, <laughs> but we always view ourselves as like the stable element. Uh, yes. but really we need to consider ourselves as one of the variables that's involved in all of these. And he talks <laughs> about how like we're, we're part of the problem when we're having spousal issues. We're part of the problem when we're not getting along with someone at work. Um, but then he also takes it to the next level, uh, with the religious element of like, when we think God should be acting in a certain way, we don't, uh, once again, we're, we're not considering ourselves, uh, uh-huh. like we remove our, ourselves from the equation. And, uh, I think that's one of the ideas that maybe we're seeing here in this idea of till we have faces that we are part of those, <laughs> those problems, be it with deity or with anyone else. And we right. really need to be honest with ourselves and understand ourselves when we're trying to understand why the world is against us. <laughs> you know, why the odds seem stacked against us, why things are so hard, what are uh-huh. we doing? Uh, and, and what is our, uh, role in, both creating and then solving those problems instead of expecting a God to solve them or expecting someone else to stop acting the way they're acting. Uh huh. And I would, maybe this is just, I mean, I may be pulling this as much from everything else I've read that CS Lewis wrote as I am from this, but even in that understanding the fact that until we, until we have faces, you know, until we understand who we are, and we understand our own role uh, or accept our own responsibility in in our lack of understanding of what's going on with God, God is still there. <laughs> and uh, you know, as uh, we talked about earlier, he is still there and he, he kind of has things under control. <laughs> and, and, and maybe the issues that we're seeing, it's part of it is a matter of our perspective. Yeah. So like I, I, I loved realizing like how great Orwell is as a leader it hinges on these really what she views as negative experiences yes. that she gets fixated on the negativity and she like she writes almost in an offhand way and she just takes no credit for herself in everything that goes right for the kingdom mm-hmm. once she's queen. <laughs> yeah. She's and, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but I love her. I love her as a character. Um she, she is, she's great. Um, she's certainly complex and her identity is so fluid. Uh, and I think that that's, it's part of what makes her relationship with the gods. So frustrating for her is that 
she she has these different because each one of the faces that she that she wears has a different relationship with deity and so when she's with the fox she feels so sure of of what of what is happening right and she and she feels so sure that she understands who the gods are or are not and then when she meets psyche in the, on the mountain that whole thing crumbles and she realizes that she didn't know anything and when she's with the priest of ungit she feels something different and that it's like that fluidity seems to be at the heart of her frustrated relationship with god or god the gods does that uh, sound fair yes i think we need to wrap things up there todd but great discussion and thank you again to listener rachel and patron rachel for suggesting this book which was not on our radar for our discussion at all uh and i love it when we get these suggestions of things that neither of us are really thinking about discussing and i think this led to one of our more fruitful discussions so thank you again rachel um, links to things we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com. That's also where you can find a list of all of our previous shows. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. And we're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, and at Jay Dorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. Our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. Really good conversations have been cropping up there, and that's where we get the best interaction with our listeners, so please go like that page. If you would like to support the show financially, there are a few different ways you can do that. To buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation, you can click on the support link on our homepage or go to patreon.com slash protagonists. All supporters on Patreon receive access to our special quick casts, shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers. Our latest involved a dual discussion about Suicide Squad and the Jane Austen adaptation Love and Friendship. It... <laughs> It ended up working. Uh, you can also go to protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon to make all of your Amazon purchases. Just a reminder, it looks like regular Amazon and costs you nothing, but we get a little bit of money when you use that link. And finally, please don't forget to sign up for a 30-day free trial of audible.com by going to audibletrial.com slash protagonist. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation <coughs> you can cough out loud it's okay i'll cut it sorry it's doing so well <coughs> i'm out of water right there's the drag ah, wet the instrument <laughs> wow that was for the really <laughs> that was a tough one yeah i just all of a sudden i was dry and the words were not coming out all right.